This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that Right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Politics and Polemics, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Megum. I'm also the public relations officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago in the Caribbean. Today, my guest is Ozan Ozafshi, author of the book Dangerous Gifts, Imperialism, Security, and Civil Wars in the Levant, 1798-1864, published by Oxford University Press, out now in hardcover and on Kindle. Welcome, Ozan. Hi. Hi, Kirk. Yes, I'm, I'm sorry for not being able to pronounce your name properly. I tried my best. <laughs> no problem. You did really well. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we like to start off our interviews by having the authors tell us a bit more about themselves. So can you please let our audience know a little bit of the background to yourself, and particularly in relation to the subject of this book. Yes, sure. I'm originally from Turkey, now living in Utrecht in the Netherlands and working uh, as an assistant professor of trans-imperial history at Utrecht University. I completed my postgraduate studies in history and Middle Eastern studies at uh, Manchester University in the United Kingdom. Since my early work, I've been interested in Euro-Middle Eastern entangled histories, especially in relation to the transfer of ideas, economic and financial relations, and foreign interventionism, which is the subject of my new book. Right. Okay. Um, You know, just even the... um... The the department name is interesting, Trans-Imperial History. Um, What is meant by uh, Trans-Imperial History? I think it's not the name of the department. It is my specialization. And by Trans-Imperial History, I refer to is the uh, mobilization of resources, not only across, but also in between and beyond imperial borders. And uh, this is a new subdiscipline that is emerging in the field of history. And uh, I've been working on this, uh, looking at how major and smaller empires in the late 18th and 19th century 
came to interact with each other, not only within the confines of competition, but new forms of collaboration and transmission of, uh, as I said, resources, uh, of, of the capital and ideas and, uh, and of course, uh, know-how. Right. And, and what, what I find interesting about this, and I, I'd like to hear a perspective, I mean, maybe jumping the gun a bit, but still, it might, it might since we've touched the topic, maybe I, I could continue, which is, you know, um, the Ottoman Empire certainly is, um, uh, you know, imperial. So, uh, and, and I find myself being uh, from, you know, the third world, uh, I, I, I I have, in my own work, I have very much been uh, critical of the kind of victim, victimhood uh, um, sort of narrative and framework uh, to the discussion of, of history in general and, uh, and imperial history. And, uh, you know, so, so the Ottoman Empire, uh, I, I, I don't know if, if uh, you include that as part of the imperialisms uh, uh, that, you know, that uh, may be related to each other. Uh, how, how, do you, how do you situate the Ottoman Empire in the history of imperialism? I'm just interested in general in that. Yeah, this is an excellent question, Kirk. The Ottoman Empire was an empire, even though in the Ottoman Turkish language, the Ottomans wouldn't really call themselves an empire because there is no clear equivalent of the term. But in the French language, in diplomatic language of the time, they did call themselves an empire. And they did show many of the characteristics of an empire in terms of establishing an often asymmetrical uh, relationship between those subjugated by the sultan and his entourage. So, yeah, it was an empire. There was an unfolding Ottoman imperialism, which became even more clear as of the 19th century. So Ottoman Empire was a major actor of global imperial relations in the 19th century. Towards the end of the century, you would even find the Ottomans being involved in what uh, my colleague Mustafa Minawi would call the scramble for Africa. So yes, Ottoman Empire was one of the major powers, occasionally called a great power in the 19th century. And uh, yeah, it did have its imperialist aspirations. But at the same time, it was colonized or semi-colonized, I, I use the term financially colonized and economically colonized by Western European empires during the course of the 19th century. So it was both the victim, if you like to use the term, uh, of uh, colonization. But at the same time, yeah, it, uh, it did absorb and mimic many of the imperial and imperialistic practices of Western European, Northern American empires as well. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating in terms of the way it, it um, uh, has has both aspects, you know, and 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 I do think the victim victimhood uh, framework that's often used it, it denies agency um, to people, uh, you know, in outside of Europe, you know, as if the uh, so so that that's one aspect I'm I'm very interested in yeah. and, and and that point you you raise is very interesting in the Turkish language uh, the uh, they would not have referred to themselves as an empire uh, which is, which is interesting uh, I would be interested in, in the term they used and if 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 there was a different concept because you know I mean so let's say in the Indian subcontinent you would have things like um, 
like what in English would be called the Maratha Empire, but but of course these are English words um, and and English concepts of of statecraft etc., which which may not translate into other languages. And I mean Turkey, Turkey, uh, well the Ottoman Empire I should say, um, you know was an empire or at least from our definition of empire the, uh, from this English speaking side. Um, for over 500 years, which is longer than any European empire, in fact. So I, I, I'd be interested in, in the way uh, they refer to themselves. Uh, could you, uh, I, I did, does it have to do with, let's say, the caliphate and, and the ummah and, and this sort of thing? Can you uh, elaborate on that for us? Well, the caliphate and ummah element was used uh, pragmatically, and especially that became the case in the late 19th century uh, under Sultan Abdulhamid II. The Ottomans did not use the term empire in the Turkish language. I think the closest to that modern Turkish language would be imperatorluk, but that wasn't really the word, the notion used back then at the time. They would call themselves the Devleti Ali, the high state, uh, that was controlling, and this is where the Ottoman polity uh, and its um, administrative structure can be likened to a, an empire. It was a large political uh, unit. It did uh, establish dominant control over a variety of people. And by control, I mean in certain parts of the empire, this control was more direct, more immediate. But in, in lands like Algiers, in the West, or Yemen in the South, or Egypt, you would find that the link between the imperial center, Istanbul or Constantinople, however you like to put it, and the periphery of the empire was mainly limited to the payment of yearly tributes and the dispatch of military units in times of war. So there was this limited uh, relationship between the imperial center and the rest. But it was still hierarchical. We were we are still talking of a large political unit with an expansionist drive or a memory of it. So, in many senses, the Ottoman administrative structure was uh, showing the characteristics of an empire, even though the term was hard today. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, because they they did take over the Byzantine Empire, basically, and and yeah, so it's yeah. very interesting, very interesting. So. I mean, obviously, um, being Turkish, I, I would imagine the the uh, subject would interest you naturally. But in in this particular uh, subject of you know the Levant and and the history there, um, and the particular subject of this book, how did you become interested in that? Well, in my early work, I focused on the history of liberalism and the idea of liberty in the late Ottoman Empire and uh, modern Turkey. My studies have led me to the conclusion that the peculiar characteristics of liberal thought in this context, such as its communitarian nature, its endless flirt with nationalism, and uh, despite the imperial history, the anti-imperialist undertones of liberal thought in the Ottoman Empire and modern Turkey. It owes much to the global imperial context and what I like to call the ontological insecurities these global imperial relations generated for the so-called Eastern or global Southern polities. 
And this context, the context of interventionism, this context of global hierarchies, prompted in me the need to address the question of how imperial encounters and foreign interventions in the Ottoman world affected local political dynamics. When did they help improve local conditions? And when did they have adversarial effects? And I came to realize more and more that modern liberty, modern modernity or secularization, whatever you, it was security that acted as the driving force of history, late Ottoman history, Middle Eastern history, and Euro-Middle Eastern entangled histories. While, while I was pondering on these issues, my paths crossed with a brilliant scholar, Beatrice de Graaf at Utrecht University, who had recently obtained a European Research Council consolidator grant for her project on European security cultures in the 19th century. This was in uh, 2014. She invited me to write a book on the 1860 Syrian civil war and the European intervention in it. At first, I thought I could use the civil war as a window to investigate the pendulum between security and liberty in the wider Middle East in the age of empires. My plan was to write a book about the International Commission on Syria, which consisted of five European commissioners and an Ottoman representative. The book would be a micro-historical analysis of the circumstances on the ground how these European commissioners dealt with it, and how they came up with a new administrative model in Syria in early 1860s and 1861, to be more precise. And then I was writing a background chapter to understand why were why five European commissioners were dispatched to Syria to oversee the establishment of this security regime after, after the civil war. By what rights were these European agents involved in this? And how did the history of this collective Western interventionism begin? So almost halfway through the project, I restructured my uh, book in a way to address these connect questions, which uh, organically turned uh, the book Dangerous Gifts into a study of nearly a century of Western armed interventionism in the Levant. Right, right. Yeah, you know, that's that's so fascinating on, on so many levels. I mean, I... I uh... The relationship between liberalism, uh, globalization, um, uh, the different types of, of liberalism with communitarianism and nationalism, uh, the, these things resonate with me very powerfully. Uh, they're ideas I'm very interested in. And, and then, and then um, the, uh, the security versus liberty dilemma, well, certainly today, <laughs> that's a, a very yeah. live topic in, in so many other ways but and i really do think that this um that that this area too that you're talking about in this particular historical period is fascinating in terms of of maybe the well i guess the switch in status of the ottoman empire um you know and that very question you ask you know what gave the european powers um the sense of of right or superiority because i don't think they always felt superior um i i think that 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 was a, a change and 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 I th- I think you do um, uh, outline it in your book, you know. So that um, uh, so so that I, I and and I think this is in general too. I I I believe when you know the Europeans went into Africa, even when they went into um, uh, and I'm talking in the uh, 17th century, 16th century, and in in India uh, or the various empires, the Mughal Empire or, or whatever. Um, the, the Europeans certainly did not see themselves as superior, and they weren't. 
in fact, um, at the time. Uh, that 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 came about later. That whole construction, and yeah. um, so your so this conference um, that that you're referring to, um, the security conference, and uh, how how does that really? Would you say that was a pivotal point in this sort of changing of 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 perceptions and power roles and and uh, you know uh, of of, of self perception and perception of the other? Would you agree with that? As a historian, I'm not very friendly with pinpointing these pivotal moments and mm. uh, building narratives around them alone. We have these multi-layered processes, and these are gradual processes that lead to certain understandings, such as seeing the world through a bifocal lens, through a hierarchical lens, and seeing a you know group of leading edge empires. If, if I may use the 19th century vocabulary, as the civilized leading edge empires and the others as uncivilized or civilizing or, or uh, barbaric or semi-civilized, these, these terms were used uh, in, uh, interchangeably. Uh, but it was a gradual process. I would say the origins of this can be linked to enlightenment ideas when the term civilization came to be reformulated into uh, uh, a political vocabulary, even though since the beginning of history, all major political units tend to see the world as uh, civilized and the, and, and, and the rest with the enlightenment thought, with the belief that once acquired, truths can be taught. And the civilized nations can use civilization both as a state of being, but also as a process of helping other progress. This is this is a Western European belief initially. Uh, with that, the entangled histories of uh, Europe and other parts of the world, be it Asia in Asia or in the Americas, and but particularly in Africa and the Levant, Mesopotamia, and Asia Minor, is started to have a different face, and. Uh, one of the earliest moments of, of uh, if you really want a pivotal point, I think that one of the earliest moments of this hierarchical encounter would be the French occupation of Egypt in 1798, when the French um, set sail across the Mediterranean in May 1798. They believed in the noble nature of their mission. They believed that, at least some of them believed that, and the, the occupation was framed as a noble mission for the benefit of the locals, which, in a way, started to configure a new understanding of interventionism, a hierarchical one, certainly, but also one through an imperialist hubris. Yeah, that's very interesting, too. I mean, I, I myself, through, through study of, of different areas and aspects of history, have come across uh, the, the very same phenomenon, and uh, I, I've noticed, you know, the, uh, and, and I now am convinced of the very, very uh, um, inextricable relationship between liberalism and imperialism, in fact. Mm. Uh, w w would, you, w would you come to the same sort of conclusion from your own research? Yes, certainly there are. I think the two developed in parallel with each other. Liberal imperialism was one of the driving forces of imperial expansionism in the 19th century. 
But it wasn't alone liberalism. What is what was at stake there? Huh? It was there. There was more to that than liberalism. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Absolutely. So 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 certainly the flow of capital was also very important here. Yeah. Uh, in in the, in the, in expansionism, like uh, I tell my students the story of this four Gs. Gold is certainly important, but there is also these geostrategic considerations at play here. The, during the you know wider global imperial competition, so that was the second G. There is a third G, which is glory. You know, empires would want to sustain or preserve their civilized status, especially Russia after the Crimean War. It was of utmost importance for Russian imperial security understanding. And the fourth G was God. They tried to spread the message of the gospel. Uh, liberalism was there. But liberalism, like security, is such a chameleon term, isn't it? It takes mm-hmm. different meanings in different contexts and can serve different ends. So I, I, I'm, I'm not really sure if we can really limit imperialism to a liberal worldview. I think there was much more at stake. There were several other uh, ideologies of progress, like nationalism, eventually social Darwinism. But uh, yeah, absolutely the the uh, flow of capital, the desire for global free trade, the desire for opening different economies like in the Levant, in the Ottoman world, in China and in Africa to global free trade, lowering uh, uh, import and export tariffs, customs duties, they all played a huge uh, role uh, in, in, in globalization yeah. and making the world more combined than ever as Barry Boozen and George Lawson argue in their 2015 book, Global Transformation. Yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's fascinating. And now, well, let's just get to the, the title of your book, Dangerous Gifts. What, mm-hmm. what are you referring to in, in that title and, and why is it important? What, what are these dangerous gifts? Yeah, I'm very glad you asked this question, Kirk. By dangerous gifts, I'm referring back to an... In fact, engaging with a hidden dialogue that transpired some 18 years ago in the run-up to the United States-led coalition's invasion of Iraq in 2003. Back then, a number of scholars of the Middle East and international relations politics would turn to the recent past in an attempt to justify the invasion. Among them was late Fouad Ajami of Stanford University, who was one of the most popular and influential proponents of the Iraqi war. He reportedly advised at the time neoconservative leaders, uh, such as Dick Cheney in Washington, D.C. And in his writings of the time, Ajami argued that Britain as an empire had its chance in the early 20th century to control Iraq and improve it, uh, modernize it, but it failed due to the exhaustion of its economy after World War I. Now it was the time for the Americans. The Iraqis, this, this is just before the invasion, huh? mm-hmm. Ajami argued that the Iraqis would welcome the Americans <laughs> with open arms because they were desperate to rid themselves of the rule of Saddam Hussein. So now it was the United States' imperial burden to secure them and also modernize the Arab world above and beyond toppling the regime of Saddam Hussein. This is what Ajami would write just before the invasion. And then 
three years into the war, Fuad Ajami published a book titled Foreigner's Gift. In this book, he claimed that since the war was an effort to decapitate the despotic regime in Iraq, it was a legitimate and noble imperial mission, a foreigner's gift to the Iraqi inhabitants, to cite him. He would say, only time would tell if it was a noble success or a noble failure. On the other side of this hidden dialogue, there were figures like uh, the prominent American-Palestinian literary scholar Edward Said, who would argue against the interpretations that considered empire and imperialism as benign. Only weeks before the invasion and months before he passed away, Edward Said wrote that every empire would tell itself and the world that it's unlike other empires. Its mission is not to plunder, but to educate and liberate, to quote him. Of course, I'm more inclined to think along the lines of Edward Said here, but mm-hmm. not uncritically. Right. The problem with both takes, of both Ajami and Said's takes, is their impressionistic nature. Neither Ajami nor Said were historians of foreign interventionism in the Middle East, nor were there any in-depth studies in their time that looked into the making of collective imperial interventions and the reception of these interventions in the wider Middle East. There wasn't back then any coherent body of literature that looked into the imperialism security nexus. So I cannot blame Ajami or Said for their impressionistic takes, but I can say, and that's what I try to show in the book, that um, when we look into nearly two centuries long modern Western armed interventionism in the Middle East, we find discourses very similar to those adopted by Ajami that framed interventions as a grace or favor or service or gift to the Levantine inhabitants. But when we peel away the manifold, self-centered, strategic, economic, financial, and other motivations that prompted such interventions, we see that such discourses are nothing but a beguiling delusion. So historically speaking, the gifts Ajami spoke of tended to be nothing but dangerous in the Middle East. So one had to write a history of how it all began and how each intervention forged into a pattern or a culture of security. That's why I needed to write dangerous gifts and call it dangerous gifts. Right. That's that's um, very, very fascinating and very important, I think, you know. Um, so, I, I, well, can you just outline the basic argument uh, of, of the book? I know you, you have it um, divided into three parts and then chapters under each each part. Avant le mot, um, the invention of the Eastern question, uh, the mountain. These are the titles you have for your parts. And so what, what is the argument you take your reader through? I'd say the central argument of the book is that we need to take into account the um, long-standing vectors that enabled foreign interventions and their often catastrophic results in the 19th century Middle East. In the book, I speak of the emergence of a trans-imperial security culture, or what we may call, in simpler terms, a culture of foreign interventionism in the region. This culture was woven around the Eastern question, which is widely accepted by historians to be the most dangerous, complex, and international issue of the long 19th century, causing the death of more than a million people. 
at its simplest, the Eastern question was the question of how to deal with the alleged weakness of the Ottoman Empire, whose lens, as we spoke, stretched from the Crimea in the north to Yemen in the south, from Algeria and the Balkans in the west to Persia and Basra in the east. With the French invasion of Egypt in 1798, Western great powers considered it a duty to supply security in these territories, or they framed it so, through periodical interventions, usually against the will of the Ottoman sovereign, but allegedly for the benefit of the locals. This resulted in a paradox, and this is at the heart of the book in the argument, an ever-increasing demand for security in the region, despite its purportedly increasing supply. I am discussing in the book how the Middle East came to be embroiled in a violent vortex and a cycle of civil wars, interventions, and then further violence. Or in other words, I document the making of this security paradox, how it emanated from a variety of factors, such as the gaze of the imperial legends on the Ottoman territories, or their haughty belief in their capacity to transform a local reality and local complexities that they had, in fact, hardly understood, or in some cases chosen to ignore. I I try to draw attention to the pull factors also, the long-omitted agency of the local Levantines in enabling foreign interventionism. So the book peels away these intersectoral dynamics of interventions, how economic and financial considerations informed interventionism. And it shows that we cannot understand the French invasion of Egypt in 1798 without taking into account the French merchants' debts to Egyptians, or we cannot understand why the Ottoman Empire opted out of the final act of the Congress of Vienna, say, in uh, 1815, without the power's demands for opening up the Ottoman economy, opening up to global free trade. So in short, I argue for considering Western interventionism from a more holistic lens, with historical depth, but also intersectoral breadth, to explain their counterproductive nature in the Levant or the wider Middle East, how it's created a security paradox. Yeah, that, that's um, very, very interesting. Um, and yeah, the and, and, and one thing I'd like to explore in that a little bit more is, I mean, yes, the, I, the French invasion of Egypt, yeah, I think was, um, yeah, it, 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 it must be um, uh, a very important point in terms of, you know, going into the, you know, Ottoman territory, because I, it, and t- tell me if you um, if if you think I'm wrong in my understanding here, uh, but uh, you know at, at the time I I don't think the Ottomans were seen as you know inferior. They you know they they were another power. Maybe they were opponents. Maybe they were enemies, um, and and maybe there was some sort of discord. I, I I tend to think I I wonder if if I'm trying to to look at a, a contemporary parallel. Perhaps something like the way the West sees China um, as powerful, uh, but you know, but still othering them, <clears throat> kind of calling them barbarians and 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 enemies and and dangerous people, but uh, but not necessarily anymore seeing them as as inferior in in that sense. Um, and and so that's one aspect in terms of that changing relationship of, of the West to, to the Ottomans. And then the other thing is, is I guess, which is part of, of the changing relationship is, is a changing, I don't know, the, uh, 
if you understanding of history, because you know what people now say all the time is that uh, oh yes, well in the, in the Middle East they've been fighting for centuries, forever. Uh, you know, it's just one long history of civil war. But from my understanding of history, I mean the Ottomans. I suppose after the initial conquest period, but you know, for centuries the Middle East was not a a, a, a sore point in global uh, geoeconomics as it as it was after the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire. I mean, in my view, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire, you know, was it was central to the whole tumult and and the centrality of these Middle Eastern um, problems from the Israel-Palestine problem to nationalism and, and so forth. But, um, yeah, so, so you are historicizing uh, this, the civil wars and not seeing it as, as the way it's said in, in just, oh, they'll be fighting for thousands and thousands of years and they'll be continuing fighting for thousands and thousands of years in the future. So that historicization I'd like you to comment on and then and yeah and and the changing relationship between the west and the ottoman empire can you uh, delve into that for us a little yes sure um i must say kirk i don't quite agree with you mm-hmm. when we say the um so called western european empires were not seeing the ottoman empire as inferior to them in the 1790s in fact they were seeing the ottoman empire as inferior they were already developing projects like the Greek project, uh, where they would dismantle the Ottoman Empire and re-erect in her place a Byzantine Empire. There were very concrete plans of this, developed mm-hmm. by Katerina II, the Russian Empress, joined by the Austrian King Joseph. They were trying to pull the French into the picture. In fact, they would offer France Egypt in the first place, but the French foreign minister at the time um, would not agree with the saying that it would create a domino effect and unsettle European peace, unsettle mm-hmm. European balance. I think as early as the first decades of the 18th century, this understanding that the Ottomans were no longer as strong as they used to be gradually uh, became strong, gained traction in Western European, or, or let's say European international thought. By 1770s, when the Ottoman Empire had a catastrophic defeat at the hands of the Russians and lost um, uh, full control of Crimea and signed a really devastating peace called the Kuchukainaji Treaty, it became more evident for many European uh, scholars and politicians, diplomats, that the Ottoman Empire was weaker than major European empires. It could fall. It was now at the mercy of these European empires. So that equivalency, power balance between the Ottoman world and Western Europe, in European eyes, was, yeah, it was gone. The Ottomans also believed so. And they were not the passive actors of this, what was called the Eastern question. In fact, that's one of the things I try to show in the book. They've been active agents since the beginning. They also believed that their empire was in decline, although this is a very questionable term. They also believed that their empire uh, needed to be revived. Mm-hmm. But it is a question of inferiority. No, it wasn't really quite the, quite the case. 
to 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 answer because I mean in World War One the Ottomans were a uh, were a participant in, in you know the central yeah. powers and and so forth you know uh, and they they weren't a a, a colonial possession they were a, a participant. No, yeah, yeah, true. They they joined the war. Yes, in uh, in nineteen fourteen in November. Yeah, even though they could choose to opt out. But they chose to opt out from the Napoleonic Wars as well uh, in 1790s until the French occupation of Egypt. And then they effectively started the second, uh, the war of the Second Coalition in uh, 1798-99. So I would say the geostrategic and geoeconomic importance of uh, the regions that were collectively called the Middle East as of 1900s, I think that goes back not to the 20th century but to the late 18th century, with the independence of first Northern America and then Southern America, mm-hmm. uh, with the shift of the focus of global colonial competition from the Americas to Asia. Mm-hmm. The Ottoman Empire suddenly emerges, this gateway huh, between two worlds, Europe right. and Asia, between Europe and Africa. So it became immensely important from that point on. So I wouldn't really... Uh, see history starting in the early 20th century for the Middle East. In fact, all those ontological insecurities, history of interventionism, first proxy wars, and many of the practices what I, in, in what I call this culture of foreign interventionism or trans-imperial security culture, including their you know, uh, uh, vocabularies, huh? like gifts, like like. Like uh, responsibilities to protect, all these go back to late 18th and early 19th century, and they are configured into a culture by the time uh, my, my book ends in like in 1860s. Yeah, that that's fascinating. Yeah, and and the shift from, I mean, I I know um, uh, some uh, historians have called it from at least in in the history of the British Empire, the British mm-hmm. Empire. Uh, the first empire, which is America's based, to the second British Empire, which was Asian based, um, yeah, that that um, definitely makes makes a lot of sense uh, there. Um, what you were talking about in 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 the um, movement of focus, and you, you know what else was, was fascinating to me that you mentioned because it's something that's not often recognized in um, Western scholarship uh, about uh, first of all the Russian Empire. Uh, and and its importance, uh, and uh, and then as a subset of that, um, Orthodox Christianity, and then how their relationship to the Byzantine Empire, as opposed to Western, uh, you know, the, the Latin, the, the Western, the Protestant empires, um, and and that uh, I, I suppose that um, I mean the whole history of the Hagia Sophia and um, re- reconquering Constantinople and the, um, the, the new Byzantine Empire would uh, be very important. Because, uh, and, and there's this idea of, of Moscow being the third Rome uh, for the, uh, you know, the um, uh, Christian, uh, the, the Orthodox Christian world after the, the fall of Constantinople, that that would have played a, a big part in the, Russian consciousness, uh, at least. Um, yes. Can you, yeah. Can you uh, uh, elaborate on that for us, please? Yes, that's true. But at the same time, we should not forget that these are historical processes. So it wasn't a constant, the Greek project of Russia. Mm. 
they upheld it in the 1870s. But by 18, sorry, 1792, 93, the project was abandoned, especially after the death of Caterina II. Mm. But then in the 1800s, in 1807, in Tilsit, uh, Tsar Alexander and Napoleon Bonaparte would discuss how to dismantle the Ottoman Empire again. But then in 1830s, Russia would emerge as the protector of the Ottoman Empire. So the relationship was very dynamic. Mm. You, you would say, like, I, I try to summarize it in the conclusion of the book, but in, in about every decade of the late 18th and 19th centuries, Russian position with respect to Ottoman Empire would see a change. So uh. they would uphold two different projects, Greek project and Ottoman project on the one hand, like protecting or dismantling the Ottoman Empire. And then they would develop this idea of weak neighbor okay, we really don't need to dismantle the Ottoman Empire. As long as we establish a dominant influence over it, we keep it weak, it will never be a threat to Russia, and we can still have access to the Mediterranean uh, through our dominant influence, which they obtained in 1830s during a civil war in the Ottoman world. They supported the Ottoman imperial center against the dissenting, uh, from an Ottoman point of view, Egyptian Pasha, but then all of a sudden, the regime in Istanbul fell under Russian dominant influence, which almost created a, a European-wide war because the British and French realized that the power balance would, in, in Europe would be upset if Russia could control the Black Sea and the Aegean Sea, which would give it a, a strategic advantage. So the story is, in fact, a lot more complicated than that. But the orthodoxy element was always there. Russian imperial agents did use... Uh, the the existence of a significant um, Greek Orthodox and Orthodox population in Ottoman territories as a channel of interventionism in in many episodes uh, in, in the late 18th and 19th centuries. Wow, that's fascinating. I maybe we could briefly uh, discuss your relationship uh, to the critique of Orientalism by Edward Said and, and the debates and scholarship surrounding, you know, this historiography and uh, where you place yourself uh, within that, because I, I know you've made reference to it within your book. Yeah, but the narrative of the book does build upon this critique of Orientalism by, by Edward Said. One of the main contributions of dangerous gifts to the scholarship, uh, I like to think, is that uh, it foregrounds the agency of local actors, the Levantine Ottoman actors. It tells the story of the Eastern question and the culture of interventionism, not only through the lens of major Western empires and through their archives alone, but also from the angle of local actors, be it Ottoman imperial agents or a Lebanese family. So this contrapuntal approach uh, as Edward Said calls it, uh, drawing, borrowing it from musicology counterpoint. He had suggested this uh, in his 1993, if I'm not mistaken. Culture and imperialism. Culture and imperialism, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it helps dangerous gifts critically approach the literature on the Eastern question that has habitually focused on the great powers on the West and that has habitually considered the Eastern question primarily as a Western question. Yet, in his earlier work in Orientalism, Said tells us that Orientalism is a style of thought, lies on an imaginative bifurcation of the world between the West and the East that has long enabled Western domination. And to many critics, 
this postulation is an inherently orientalist quality itself because it perpetuates the irreconcilable division between West and East. Mm-hmm. Dangerous Gifts strives to go beyond these distinctions and attempts to show the entangled nature of inter-imperial and communal relations. Hence, I use the term trans-imperial. It argues against cultural or other iron curtains between West and East. And by the same token, the book looks to go beyond the political and polemical nature of uh, the critic of Orientalism by means of multi-archival research. And with this, I mean archival sources, not only in Europe or America or Russia. I do make use of all these archival sources, but I also try to bring into picture or bring into discussion Turkish, Ottoman, Egyptian archival sources. So the book looks to bring a more substantiated analysis of the Eastern question and foreign intervention interventions. It looks to push or it looks to um, draw attention to both push and pull factors of interventionism, at the same time remaining loyal to what historical data tells us, rather than trying to fit historical data into an argument or theory. Yeah, that that's very important. I, I mean, I remember when cultural culture and imperialism came out, and um, and and I thought, you know, while it provided a, a nice framework. I was um, I was disappointed that that it did, didn't have um, much of the sort of agency of of the um, you know of the other in a sense what what he was trying to bring in uh, there and and it sounds like you know that's an important important uh, contribution of this book in particular. So what what would you say are some of the most common under misunderstandings about? Lebanon and the Levant, and particularly in the period that you address? What what are the most common misunderstandings? From a historical point of view, the inhabitants of the Levant have usually been associated with barbarism as peoples prone to violence, incapable of self-governance, or worse, as people with undeserving lives. These postulations run through history in the writings of several European and some Ottoman imperial agents. But because of the immensely complex dynamics that resulted in violence that prompted prompted violence, the historical contingencies of the decisions made by these Levantine actors were usually paid less attention by the same agents, European or Ottoman. For example, one cannot explain why the Greeks, Ottoman Greeks, rose and killed thousands of Muslims in the Muria in the 1820s, in the early years of the independence war, or why the Damascus Muslims fell upon the Christian quarter of the town in 1860, murdering again thousands. One cannot explain these tragic histories without looking into the long-standing political, economic, emotional sufferings of these populations, not without fully understanding what was at stake for them. So this is why it's of crucial importance to offer what I call an intersectoral analysis of financial, economic, cultural, and religious actors, factors, sorry, informed political and diplomatic decision-making processes and, and uh, vice versa. Such an, if we approach the his, history from such an angle, it would allow us to see, for instance, that um, sectarianism emerged in the 19th century Lebanon, 
not after the 1840 intervention of the great powers or with the beginning of the Tanzimat era a year earlier uh, after the proclamation of the Gülhane Edict. This is a popular, widely accepted argument in literature. But an intersectoral historical excavation shows us earlier examples of sectarian violence, that is, the mobilization, the mobilization of people against each other through religious discourses and sentiments before 1839-1840, as I detail in the book. The major problem in approaching the Levant in the 19th century was that how to believe in one's so-called civilized status and how it gave license to the intervening powers to transform an extremely complex social reality on the ground, which they hardly understood. This, this lies, I think, at the heart of the misunderstandings as well. Maybe this is more a misperception of the self, or Western self, or the global uh, North self, or great powers self, or imperial self, than the Levantines. But it did radically affect the history of the world. Right. Well, I mean, this is, uh, so obviously this is uh, not, uh, I, I suppose, as, as so much of history, it's not only about the period of time you're writing about. It's, it's obviously relevant for today as well. I mean, you did speak about the Iraq war and how it even motivated you uh, in terms of uh, writing the book itself. But uh, but in terms of its, its relevance for today in 2021, um, can you share your thoughts on that? Yes, of course. Um, I think the same overconfident approach in resolving the problems of what we may call the wider Middle East has persisted to this date. I argue in the book that we share with the 19th century historical actors a common counterproductive culture of security or a culture of interventionism, which was configured under the inspiration of Enlightenment thought with the crafting of the notion of great power as a quasi-legal category in international law. And of course, through the Orientalist bifurcation of the world as the civilized and the others, the West and the Orient. All these discourses and the security paradox or the vicious cycle of interventionism and violence still continue today. So the problem is not so much with the notion of interventionism alone. For example, the events in Rwanda, Bosnia, or now in Syria tell us how not to intervene, not inter- non-intervention can inflict an even greater intolerable amount of suffering and uh, loss of life. But the problem here is, for nearly two centuries, the interest of foreign powers, initially Western European and then Global North, and now regional contenders for dominance in the Middle East, such as Saudi Arabia, Iran, Iran, and Turkey. The interests of these foreign powers have been prioritized during interventions and have filled cycles of violence and civil wars. The current culture of foreign interventionism has long neglected the needs and political agency of the populations in question, the target populations. They have allowed oppressive military regimes to cling to power, as we see, for example, in Egypt and Syria. Lebanon is also a case in point. I think the message we can drive from all this is that uh, understanding the situation today, say in Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, and to a lesser degree in Lebanon, Iran, and even Turkey, entails 
looking not only into their immediate uh, discursive environments, but that longer history of interventionism, how it has affected domestic political cultures, shrunk liberal and other progressive ideologies into their shells. There is urgent need to change this culture of interventionism because the gifts allegedly uh, given um, to, to local populations through interventions have been detrimental. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I, I know... Um... You know, it, it is not really a, a book. I mean, it is not a book about today, but but I'd like to hear your at least brief um, uh, opinion about what's going on in Afghanistan. I, I I find it very very notable the strong liberal objection to the withdrawal from Afghanistan. Not the not the typical war hawk conservative. Uh, um, stance but but the, the liberal wringing of hands at at the withdrawal and and the the anger from the liberal side uh, about um withdrawing and then allowing the the Taliban to take over etc what so I, i'm sure you know the, this book obviously i uh, would make one think about that in today's context um yeah but it's very quickly yeah i will i would like to draw your attention to intersectorality so mm-hmm. the the intervention in Afghanistan and occupation in the last 20 years, of course, there was a political and arguably a humanitarian dimension to it, what the Taliban did to the Afghanis, ending that was important. Even though the Taliban did continue to exist in the countryside, the intervention and occupation limited to the, the center, uh, the main cities, urban areas of Afghanistan. But we should also never forget this intersectoral dimension, meaning... Mm-hmm how development aid and war complex became a lucrative business for Mm -hmm. the intervening powers and certain sectors. So we should should never lose sight of this fact. And we should always remember why interventionism tends to be counterproductive by looking at true, not only historical depth, but also, as I said, intersectoral breadth for this reason. Why they failed and what Afghanis actually think now uh, it needs to be considered in relation to this uh, more complex matrix. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very interesting. So, in, in terms of the the message you would like to leave your readers with, I, we we've we've touched on it definitely through, throughout our conversation. But what would you like to let's say summarize it and bring it together as we uh, move towards our closing? Well, in fact, I've already an- answered to this in yeah. uh, in in the previous uh, mm-hmm. questions. So I don't know if I should repeat myself, but uh, shortly, yeah. it's now time to change this yeah. culture of interventionism in the wider Middle East. And a way to do it is to look at its historical origins. And well, I would advise uh, readers to take a look at Dangerous Gifts. Uh, it's also open access through Oxford University Press's website because it was funded by European Research Council. So the readers don't have to buy the book. They can easily download the PDF version uh, to their computers or what have you and well, read that, it for free. That's excellent. And and definitely we will have the link for that um, on the, the site and recommend that very, very highly. That's um, that's that's excellent. Uh and I guess before we close, uh, are you working on any other projects right now that you'd like our audience to know about? 
Uh, yes, sure. I'm currently finalizing my third monograph, uh, a much shorter study that is a prequel to Dangerous Gifts. It looks into the two Istanbul embassies of the Scottish diplomat Sir Robert Liston and discusses the intimate connections between the capitulations, that is the legal and economic privileges uh, afford, accorded to the European uh, historical actors, the relationship between capitulations and peacemaking at the turn of the 19th century. I use the diaries of uh, Robert Liston's wife, Henrietta Liston, as well as Ottoman and Russian materials in this new book. It's really fun to write it, and hopefully it will be fun for the readers uh, uh, to, to, to read. And uh, in addition to this, together with Jonathan Conlin uh, of Southampton University, I'm co-leading the Lausanne Project, which uh, will result in the publication of an edited volume on the Lausanne Peace Treaty of 1923, which was the last of the peace treaties signed at the end of World War I. It was with this treaty that the maps of the Middle East, as we know it today, was largely redrawn. Uh, so that book will come out hopefully in 2023 by uh, the Ginkgo uh, Library, with the Ginkgo Library. Okay, well, that that I uh, look forward to that, and 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 uh, good luck, and hopefully we can have you on again when those books come out. Yeah, thank you, Kirk. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for this interview. It's been very informative and stimulating. Once again, the book is Dangerous Gifts. Imperialism, Security, and Civil Wars in the Levant, 1798-1864, published by Oxford University Press, but available also on open access. And we've been speaking to the author, Ozan Ozafshi, um, and uh, it's, it's really been a pleasure. Likewise. Thank you, Kirk. Thanks also to you, our listeners. Make sure you sign up for our notifications so you don't miss any new interviews on this channel in future. I look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Thank you.